Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. This week I'll be talking with Dr. Scott McKnight. Uh, Dr. McKnight has recently written a book called Revelation for the Rest of, of Us, A Prophetic Call to Follow Jesus as a Dissident Disciple with Zondervan Press. Um, it is co-written with Cody Matchett, but my conversation today will focus uh, on uh, talking with Dr. McKnight about this book on Revelation and how um, Dr. McKnight sees a better way to understand this difficult book, um, which we both talk a little bit about our own backgrounds with reading this book. And um, so I hope that you'll uh, appreciate this conversation, get to know Dr. McKnight a little bit better, uh, as well as his uh, kind of uh, background and what got him into um, thinking about Revelation specifically. Um, we also talk about a, a shared love for baseball and um, a few other things, um, so it was a delight to get to speak with Dr. McKnight. We have a few podcasts coming up. Uh, we will be talking with Matthew Lynch about flood and fury and violence in the Old Testament, um, so we'll be doing a little bit more uh, conversation over biblical books and biblical texts than we normally do, um, but I hope that's a welcome change. And finally, we're also looking to, uh, we're going to release an episode, another episode with Paul Hinlicky, uh called Between Humanist uh, Philosophy and Apocalyptic Theology, a book he wrote about a um, guy called Samuel Osuski. Um, so I'm looking forward to releasing all those conversations. Uh, we have had some uh, recent reviews on iTunes that have been very kind. Uh, Philip says this has been an excellent podcast with great insight into theology and the history of the early church and how certain doctrine came about, and especially love the episodes with the three friends discussing their thoughts on the subject. Very entertaining and thought-provoking. Um, and so I'm always appreciative of anybody who writes in, gives us comments, uh, gives us feedback. We uh, are told that that helps people find the podcast. Um, so appreciate uh, all of you doing that. Um, and we will be, of course, recording more episodes um, and hope to get some more episodes with Tom and Trevor uh, as their school years are winding down. Uh, but those will probably be coming out this summer. Um, so sorry for the long intro. Thanks for listening. Um, and here's my episode with Dr. Scott McKnight. And so, yeah, so we are recording. Um, today on A History of Christian Theology, I have with me Dr. Scott McKnight, who is the Julius R. Manti, uh, I don't know how to say the name for sure, uh, Chair of New Testament at uh, Northern Seminary. Well, is thanks, Chad, for having me. And it's it's Julius Manti, although, and Julius Manti, you, you should know this, uh, but you're too young to know it, and that is he wrote, along with Dana, uh, a historic syntactical grammar to New Testament Greek. Okay. Uh, it was it was in the old. They were it was the old uh, A. T. Robertson kind of grammar. Yeah. So it's the old. Nobody uses it anymore. Eight cases. Uh, but I read it when I was in college, and uh, then when I came to Northern, they made me the professor, the Julius R. Manti Professor of New Testament. Though I don't <laughs> use it, I don't use that name in my signature because he was an opponent of women in ministry. Ah. So. And I'm very much a strong advocate. Okay. Good to know. So, I, I just pulled that off the Northern Seminary website. So yeah, that was <laughs> they still use it. Yep. <laughs> um well uh Dr. McKnight, uh, among many books, uh is gonna talk with us today about Revelation for the Rest of Us, uh, a prophetic call to follow Jesus as a dissident disciple. Um, and I, when I first got the book, I had a, I was looking through it, and it says, with Cody Matchett. So I thought we should uh, mention him as well. So who is Cody Matchett? He couldn't be uh, here for the conversation today, um, but wanted to give him his due as well. Yeah, Cody uh, came to Northern to study with me in New Testament, um, and he was so uh, far along and gifted that um, I made him my graduate, or I asked him to be my graduate assistant. He's been working with me. And uh, when I was writing the book of Re on this revelation, he started working with me, and I said, we're going to write this together because he's, he's now doing a Ph.D. at uh, Ridley in Australia. Oh, yeah. So he's, he lives in Canada, and he's an exceptional young scholar who will, before too long, people will know who he is. <laughs> well, that's that's good to hear. And 
that and so the book is is a, a prophetic call to follow Jesus as a dissident disciple. And and I know we'll we'll get into this a little bit more. Um, but we do have uh, the word dissident is is one of the kind of um, is is an important word uh, for you throughout the book. So could you say a little bit about the book's thesis and how does that relate to uh, being a dissident and the message of Revelation? Yeah, Chad. I mean, this is uh, this is jumping right to the heart of everything. Uh, I guess everything unfolds from it too. Um, I think the Book of Revelation has been abused and misused and misread for over a hundred years among the circles in which uh, I work and have taught my entire life and grew up in of uh, dispensationalism. And I can I often describe their readings as speculation of who is doing what in the world today that chorus who in the world today is doing what is described in the book of Revelation. And I became convinced that this was a wrong reading a long, long time ago. And I really didn't like uh, identifying people. And um, I I tended to ridicule that type of interpretation, got myself in trouble one time preaching a sermon in chapel in which our, our dean's last name was Kaiser. And I said, <laughs> you know, this is equivalent to the, this is the German word for Caesar. I said, that's pretty close to 666. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I mean, Kaiser thought it was hilarious, but some of the, some of the professors didn't think it was too cool. But I think the book is actually uh, almost like a discipleship manual okay. for Christians in Western Asia Minor who were living under the thumb of the Roman Empire in the first century and were trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in a world that was hardly amenable to that for that form of life. So John, in a sense, provides for them um, patterns, ways of living, ethics, morals, whatever you want to call it, that would turn them into dissidents against Babylon, the Roman Empire, in, jo in Johannine theology. And it turns them into people who internally and externally resist the ways of Babylon. Mm. So it's for people who will discern corruption in political contexts and live against that corruption. So mm. how's that? That's pretty good. Um, and, and yeah, it, it just reminds me of like, so my primary, like, academic research is in patristic theology and you get right from the beginning uh from you know Justin Martyr and others that sort of trying to sniff out that kind of corruption that they see in Rome and other places and you can see how this book uh sort of fits nicely in the milieu of that uh receiving the gospel and and then looking for uh you know or trying to live it out in such a way that resists uh the evil that they see around them yeah. I mean, there have been a lot of misreadings of Revelation, including, I don't know where you are on this, Chad, but the a, a lot of people think that at one time they thought there was like a official widespread persecution against Christians. Mm. But from what I read of the early patristic scholars, uh, early church people, they would say that there was no official persecution at work. Mm. Let's see, policy that was actually implemented, but there were local clearly local situations that led to people being killed. So. Yeah. Yeah. I probably don't want to go as far as Candida Moss does on some of that oh, no. rejecting, yeah. uh, rejecting it. But, uh, but yeah, maybe not like, yeah, it's hard to figure out what the program was. And, and definitely there were times when it was greater and when it was lesser and these sorts of things. Um, yeah. But uh, it'd be hard to say that Perpetua and Felicity were making it up uh, or yeah. something like that. Like, I'm I'm not yeah. really willing to just say that they just sort of, yeah, made it up out of whole cloth. Uh, but but def maybe not as widespread as we thought. Yeah. I see that Marcus Bachmuel has just translated a little book with Baylor University Press on persecution in the early church. I don't mm. know if you've seen this. It's a German I book. I want to say the last guy's name is Venker, okay. but I'm sorry, I don't. I don't I have the book, but I haven't I haven't I haven't read it, so I haven't even looked at the author's name hardly. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't know too much about it, but I'll have to look it up. I, I think I've met yeah. Marcus Bachmiel once in my seminary days, but uh it's been a while since I've read anything from him. 
Um, well, so part of uh, this, the second question you've already started to answer, but uh, sort of your I was asking about your own background and coming to terms with what revelation means. Um, and, you know, you, you talked a little bit in the beginning about uh, your, you know, how, hearing these sort of dispensational views or these views trying to speculate about when the end time is going to come. Um, just personally, I, I often tell a story about uh, changing bedrooms one night at my parents' house, and I woke up in the middle of the night to a light shining in the room, uh, and I wasn't used to sleeping in that bedroom, and it was the middle of the night, and there was a light shining in the room, and I was like, oh, the rapture's happening, and then... <laughs> immediately I got really scared because uh, I was like, well, I see the light um, and I'm not moving. Um, so I must not be a Christian. And I was no. convinced that the rest, of, well, actually I wasn't convinced my brother was. Um, so I went into my parents' bedroom because I knew they had, had would probably gone. Um, you know, they were Christians. I don't know about my brother, um, but I went to my parents' room and they were still there. So I was like, okay, wait a minute, what's going on? Well, it turns out my mom just had a spotlight on our house and I just didn't, I didn't think about that um yeah, and she hadn't turned funny. it off that night well that happened to me when i was about fourth grade it was a wednesday night i'd been to like maybe baseball in the local park and came home and i was doing something in the driveway and it got later and later and later and i was just old enough to know some of this story about the rapture and some of this stuff and I really became fearful that maybe uh, my parents had been raptured and I wasn't. My sisters were with my parents, so they could have all been raptured. And I was and our neighbor across the street who was in our church. I knew she would be raptured and they were gone as well. And, you know, it was so I had that experience. I grew up in, in that. I imagine that's where you're going to go. Um, so I'll, I'll just say I grew up my first major purpose from my uh, purchase from my paper route as a boy was a Schofield Bible mm. and uh, a leather Morocco leather. I still have it. Uh, beautiful, soft leather. And um, I, I didn't really pay that much attention to the study notes, but they were there. And occasionally I'd read them when I got to when I high school, when I really became a serious Bible student. I used that Bible quite a bit, and uh, I read through it in less than a year. The first when I was a junior in high school, and um, senior in high school, um, I then I would see the notes. I just didn't know that these notes were filtering me into a certain reading of the Bible. Uh, it was instinctive, instinctual for me to read those notes and for it to confirm what I had been taught. Our church was not heavy into dispensationalism, clearly was not into speculation, but every now and then someone would come through in a revival service and really barnstorm, barnstorm <laughs> on the imminent rapture. Um, but it was in college that I began. Well, I, okay, when I was in high school was the days of Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth, sure. which I never read. I read Salem Kerban's Guide to Survival. And now Salem Kerban was Hal Lindsey before Hal Lindsey became <laughs> Hal Lindsey. He, and, and some people thought that Hal was kind of grabbing the approach of, of Salem Kerban. But he wrote this book, on A Guide to Survival, for people who didn't get raptured to understand what was going on. And I read the book and just sort of bought it hook, like and sinker. But when I got to college, where I was thinking more for myself, I became, I, I read Bob Gundry's book, The Church and the Tribulation, became post-trib. And that just sort of started knocking down all these principles in dispensationalism. By the time I got to seminary, I didn't believe dispensationalism at all. And I was post-trib. And then through my PhD days, I became more preterist in my interpretation. And uh, then when I was a young professor at Trinity, I taught a 70 AD understanding of Matthew 24. And I have some students irritated with me and I'd say, well, here it is. And then, but then Chad, for me, what I learned from my students at Trinity in those long a day, long years ago. And I, one of them was probably your father um, <laughs> was that um, uh, when they got to the churches, they had to be pre-trib. Mm. If they weren't, they just had to stay away from that topic. 
And the new book by Daniel Hummel on the history of the rise and fall of dispensationalism shows that as professors increasingly, decreasingly became convinced of, they became unconvinced of dispensationalism, mm -hmm. it sort of flipped on the congregational side. They became more and more dispensational. Mm -hmm. So that's that was what I've experienced that right there. Most lay people have imbibed in the evangelical world a very dispensational reading of revelation and, and eschatology. Well, that uh, I have lots of questions or thoughts about that, but to try to return it to the book for a moment. So you you clearly resist readings like this in your book. Um, so yeah. how do you how do you hope to draw people in uh, into your reading? So if if this is the case that there are lots of these people out there um, who kind of have this dispensational outlook, um, you know what what are you trying to do with the book to help them see uh, this as revelation? Um, but but not that kind of revelation, right? Not trying to reveal yeah. uh, who is the next antichrist or whatever, um, but rather a, a different vision uh, for a Christian's relationship uh, to the world. Yeah, and to the state. Um, one yeah, of the right. most influential books in the history of dispensationalism is Charles Ryrie's book called Dis uh, Dispensationalism, I think it's called. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I can't think of this if there's another word in the title, but that's what it seems to me to be. And what I read, I, I read his book. I I got it when I was in college. I looked through it because I didn't believe it. And uh, then I always kept it on my shelf. And then I got rid of it one time. I had to buy the newest edition. It was It's very readable and accessible. So I said to myself, if I want to help ordinary people, understand the book of revelation in a different way i have to write something that's very accessible mm -hmm. so we worked really hard at making this accessible catchy and keep some christian life principles up front and running through the whole book so i hope that the accessibility of the prose and the um i want to keep a little bit of a polemic a diatribe against dispensationalism Mm -hmm. So that people would realize I'm not saying here's an alternative. Let's say there's three different ways to read it. They're all good. I don't think the dispensational speculation approach is good. I yeah. think it's mistaken reading. I don't think it's consistent with apocalyptic literature. So I I think um, I wanted I wanted to have a little bit of a constant poking of the other mm -hmm. side so that people would say I'm I'm different and I don't like that view and make a mega decision. The readers but also draw them into theopolitical hermeneutics so that they see that if we begin reading this book toward the end in Revelation 17 with the vision of Babylon, the whore of Babylon, that they'll get some categories for understanding what Babylon is like, corruption, political corruption is like, and start making connections to our world, the United States. And I can't tell you the number of people who've said to me, this is just like the United States. I mean, not the whole picture, of course, but there's a lot of like the United States. I say, well, that's what we have to discern. And then we have to be dissidents in those very areas where we're seeing this show up in the United States. Yeah. Is there, uh, is there a particular thing that they, that people notice about a connection between uh, Revelation 17 and, and the American state that you're you have in mind or well you know now you're asking about politics but yes i <laughs> i do think and that tells you something about my my institution where i teach and the circles i move in i think the opulence theme is very much a connection to you know what we have do you know that 90 percent of the garages in the united states have 400 square feet of boxes of junk that can't fit in the house. That's pretty serious, opulent. I mean, we've got too much stuff. Yes. And, uh, you know, we, we buy and buy and buy. Now, books are perfectly fine. We understand that. <laughs> we both are surrounded by books here. Um, an, a consciousness of image, I think, particularly under Donald Trump. Many of us saw that he wanted to make America great again. And at times, clearly, he wanted to make America great at the expense of other nations, the way he talked about other countries. Our militarism. Um, I'm a pacifist, so this one is natural for me and pretty easy to see. 
But um, we have a pretty serious militaristic buildup. We have, uh, many would say, a lot of economic exploitation as a Christian. I think that there should be a greater distribution of the economy. There should be greater justice, just like the manna story and how Paul picks this up in Second Corinthians. Uh, so and arrogance, I mean, I, I grew up in a world where America was the greatest nation in the world. That's not so true anymore for most people who grew up in the United States. But I think that there are connections between Babylon in Revelation 17 and the United States. So, and I hope you agree with me. And I, I like to tell my students, if you don't, you can be wrong. <laughs> I I don't know that I have uh I I don't know I I we I it 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 went against everything I normally do to ask you that question uh yeah. which is I I don't normally like actually you saw most of my questions they weren't very much about the politics behind it yeah. um yeah. and uh so that but I just I don't know just was curious um, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I I worry about simplicity and about the number of things that we have. My kids get, you know, so many toys for every holiday. And, you know, I just yeah, think, yeah. like, do we need that much more? Or, I mean, even my books, you know, we have we have e-readers now. Um, like, you know, should I should I have less of a stash of, um, you know, paper uh, or I, I like. I like hats. I've got a ridiculous collection of baseball hats. Um, do I need another baseball hat? Um, but, you know, yeah, it's a, it is a tough one. You know, the real question is, do you have a Cleveland Guardians hat? <laughs> I do not because I am a Cardinals fan. So I was actually raised in St. Louis. When I came back to do my PhD here, I got to come home. So, Well, my father played in the St. Louis Browns organization. Uh, it was class, he called it Class D ball in Southern Illinois. <laughs> so I grew up a Cardinal fan, and we went to a game every summer. And I've seen Bob Gibson and Lou Brock, and seen the old timers. And I've been to the original Sportsman Park. Okay, I've been to the second uh, ballpark, but I haven't been to the new one. And I'd like to, uh, I'd like to go sometime. But so well, hey, if you're ever I in saw- St. Louis, let me know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> They actually offer. I went the. I went the other night. They offer a clergy pass. So if you're clergy, oh, wow. you can go for free. Is that right? Yeah. Oh. Do you have to wear but, your collar? <laughs> you don't have to wear your collar. Um, now I think I, I I I searched your name on Wikipedia just for the heck of it. Did I see that your son is connected to the Cubs? Well, he played five years in the Cubs oh. organization, then worked yeah. fifteen years in the front office, but he's now the senior scout for the cleveland guardians so oh, we're guardian okay. fans now okay because my so, so my i can wife... cheer for the cardinals i can actually cheer <laughs> for the cardinals that's right my wife is a cubs fan so she grew up in oh. chicago because her because her dad was going to ted's um okay. and so they grew up going on the south side of chicago to watch uh the cubs at wrigley field so we're a divided household okay um all right well we're we're a little far afield but i just uh I appreciate you responding. And and that is it is one of the difficult things, though, to come to terms with, like, you know, you were interpreting it for the present day. But one of the issues of hermeneutics is, you know, how how does scripture still speak? How does God still speak? Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you know, you rightfully uh, work in this book. Uh, through the the political categories that were deployed in the original writing, so right, they weren't yeah. afraid. Uh, well, actually, they were a little afraid uh, to use you know to use them too baldly, um, which yeah, is part yeah. of what you try to help uncover. Is you know who is Babylon or uh, what are these numbers, right? So Christians are you know especially dispensationalists are concerned with that as as you are, uh, but but you hope to give a, a correct reading for those sorts of things. Yeah. Well, the, um, um, you know, the gospel reading text that has let the reader understand, you know, that's a little clue that uh, something's being said here that we understand, but I don't want to say it publicly. But the, in, in Revelation, you know, it says the, seven, the city of seven hills. There, there's not many people wondering what that means. Um, I guess there are people in Ephesus or Laodicea who wouldn't know what that means, but I can't imagine many. And uh, so I don't think John is quite as discreet as some people might might suggest. But uh, John comes out and says some pretty strong words, I think. And uh, the Christian life that is that he advocates clearly counters uh, Rome enough that people would realize we're being pushed to do something 
contrary to the system at work. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I, I mentioned that I might read this, uh, and just other other readings of Revelation abound, but I found uh, the way that you uh, explored Revelation 19 particularly helpful and interesting, uh, especially from a more pacifist angle. Um, so I, I can actually kind of remember hearing Revelation 19 uh, in a sermon by Mark Driscoll. Uh, that's I listened to that uh, growing up, and we all know uh, where that has gone. Uh, so he had a very different take on this. So I thought, uh, and you know, and one of the things that I enjoyed about your your book was it does give you know people who have kind of an aversion to um, dispensational or other harsh readings of the text, you know, finding ways to um, uh, to read it uh, with new eyes. But uh, so I thought maybe this would be an interesting one. So so uh, the Rev- uh, Revelation nineteen eleven. Uh, the rider on the white horse. Uh, so the gospels yeah. are the, the, the book, the Bible says that I saw heaven open and there was a white horse and it is a rider called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and make war. Uh, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name inscribed that no one knows, but himself. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. And so then he has armies of heaven wearing fine linen, white, pure, white and pure, um, following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword uh, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Um, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, so this is NRSV. But um, so, you know, at least when I first look at this, it's hard not to see the kind of warring imagery, the robe dipped in blood, the and then the wrath of God. Uh, but you, uh, in, in the book, you kind of help us think through different ways to consider uh, what, what does the ju- divine judgment look like and maybe what these symbols that may on the face of it seem like warring symbols may be otherwise. Well, okay. It's, it's difficult. Um, I, I would say to begin with, these are visions and i want to put this in the world of fiction more than literal prediction and description mm-hmm. so that's a pretty good little pun right there fiction <laughs> rather than prediction and description and um the big vision of the book of revelation is that injustice and oppression and violence will end ironically, with the kind of violence that God pours out in the world that ends violence. It's sort of the violence to end violence. And while this is a sword, uh, nobody uh, is encouraged to pick up a sword and fight Rome or to go to battle. Mm. Rather, this is going to be an act of God that will end injustice in the world. And I would say that the victory is through the blood is the blood of martyrdom, is death, Mm. rather than dipped in blood because he's slayed so many people that as he walks through the battlefield, the king of kings gets blood on his robe. I think that's a a gross, grotesque image that would not be characteristic. And I think that we have to learn not to read the book of Revelation literally, but literarily. And as a result, we need to see this as a vision of victory over evil in warlike language, because that's how you won battles. Mm. And we don't we don't look at I think I do think some people I remember hearing this, um, but maybe I'm just too old to be appreciated. You know, I've read Homer and I've read Virgil and I've read uh Dante, I think those are three great stories um, and writers. And then, um, and I think if we read fiction, like even like Lord of the Rings, when we see the battles, I don't think we look at these as a grotesque use of violence so much as the way you describe a victory over opponents in a battlefield. And uh, same with the Chronicles of Narnia. So I, I tend to say, we need to see this in the realm of fiction rather than description. And yes, it does connect language of the battle to God, and that can be problematic, and it can be used to legitimate or justify the use of violence for some people. But I think the overall picture is that the 
fundamental image of Jesus in the book of Revelation is that he's a lamb mm. who wins by being slaughtered and being raised by God. And the fundamental act of Jesus is that he is the true and genuine witness. And of course, you know, you teach Greek, Martus mm -hmm. uh, will become martyr uh, in the embodiment of living consistently with what you believe. And his victory is to use the word of God rather than violence. It would be, if violence is wrong and the militaristic violence is wrong, the the right is not more violence, is not mm. more militarism. So that that has been for me the irony of the book of Revelation uh, that we have to deal with. And I just got a letter from some people, some women who are doing a Bible study, and they're bothered by this thing. And I told them that I'm bothered by it as well. I think that sometimes that uh, it's too easy to think that uh, what you need to defeat violence is greater violence. I don't think that's what it's saying. But uh, but I think, uh, Chad, my main idea is that this needs to be seen in the world of fiction as defeat of evil rather than description of a battlefield. I mean, like Armageddon. You know, I, I just got Bart Ehrman's book called Armageddon. He's mm. deconstructing evangelical eschatology now which it deserves. But what I notice is he's against literal readings of the book of Revelation, but when he needs it, he uses literal readings in order to show that that evangelicalism is wrong. But if it's not literal readings, then you can't use literal readings against them. I mean, yes, right. they do read it that way. So if you turn it against them, that's fair. But if the book is not to be read literally like that, then we can't then turn it against those who use it that way so yeah well that's that's one of the difficult things about calling it literal right because and you kind of deal with this in the beginning talk and and you've already used this word but speculation you know one of yeah. the interesting things about sort of dispensational kind of readings is there's a kind of literalism um but it's a literalism yeah. that also is willing to be at least somewhat um you know as you would say speculative right so it's not dealing with yeah. the letter of the text because the letter of the text, uh, as, as, as in ad literam, right, Liter uh, like literal, uh, would probably be a preterist reading. And then it's not clear exactly, you know, what significance it has for the present day. Um, yeah, yeah. That would be one yeah. way to sort of resist this. Um, but then you might say with actually with other uh, earlier Christians, I don't even know why this we, you know, that wasn't often early on. It wasn't listed in the included, you know, canon. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Now there was some there's some tension over canon. We we avoided that discussion, so uh, I'm not really prepared to oh, yeah. uh, trot out any, that much argument about about the canon issue. But it it was accepted in the early church. Uh, apocalyptic literature was peculiar. It's so it's so apocalyptic that it's unlike anything in the New Testament, and because it has so much imagery, it th therefore partakes in the fiction of apocalyptic. Um, it's open to all kinds of uh, misinterpretations. I mean, remember, the King of Kings is called, in that very passage, uh, the Word of God, mm. the Logos. The sword, then, is the, is the sword that comes out of the Word. And it's really clever that in English it's sword and word is a part of sword. Um, but that has nothing to do with Greek. Uh, but I, I, really, I really do think that... Um, to read that literally, and Mark Driscoll would be one who would like that. He loves the bloodshed type stuff. He thinks it's manual, man, manly and masculine. I think it's a misreading of Revelation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so the, the book is full of uh, interesting kind of uh, ways of exploring the text um, one of them, you know, so a lot of the, a lot of the early Christian readers recognize the connection to Daniel, um, but some of the stuff that, that you bring out are connections to the prophets, to Exodus, uh, to the broader uh, Old Testament canon. So can you just say something uh, about how uh, the Old Testament can help us read Revelation well? Yeah. Well, this is a complex one, and you know this. You know this. Um, I would put it this way. John, John's book 
is a re- record at some level of visions that he has. All right. But he has to describe these visions because he takes it from what he saw to something that he writes down. When he writes it down, the language he chooses is going to interpret what he saw. Right? It's pretty simple, but it's pretty profound as well. Mm-hmm. John is so steeped in Old Testament prophetic writings that the language that he uses to describe what he saw sounds like Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Zechariah without very often even quoting those books, which is astounding. Mm -hmm. Because I think Greg Beal, who's sort of a guru about this, I think he says there are some 600 allusions to the Old Testament. And how many actual quotations? Hardly any. Um, So John, I I, I like to look at it this way, Chaz. he, He sees something. As he writes it down, He sees his history of reading the Old Testament, and he begins to write things out that sound like the Old Testament, not because he necessarily thought that these were predictions of the Old Testament being fulfilled, but that what he saw is similar to what they saw, and therefore he describes it in similar language. It's sort of uh, Revelation has analogy to Ezekiel and to Daniel and to Isaiah and Zechariah. So I'm, I believe that the interpretive level of John used language that sounded like the Old Testament prophets, not because he thought they were predictions, but because he could not see those things that he saw without using that language to describe it. Mm. Yeah, well, and you, one of the phrases uh, that comes up a lot for, for you, and you've used it a couple times here well, as well, is imagination, right? So we have to think about this yeah. in, in kind of a broader way. So, and we, we might say that, yeah, that John's imagination is so um, infused with uh, the Old Testament and uh, with that story that, of course, the language that he reaches for um, is language that fits within, uh, now I'm going to use the, what is it, um, uh, the the uh, what are the cultural imaginary uh, Charles Taylor right social, so that's just part social imaginary social yeah. imaginary there we go yeah, uh, there you yeah. Go. and um, yeah so anyway you maybe John is just so so engrossed in that uh, that that that's kind of the only place that he could go um, to try to put word to paper yeah I I like you're using the word social imaginary there because I we actually. I don't think I talked to Cody even about this, but I thought about doing that. And I thought, oh, my, this is just another level of language that I'm going to have to try to explain. But you can't. All right. You know, when we read The Lord of the Rings and we see Tom Bombadil, you know, bopping along, (laughs) we don't think who who is he predicting? All right. Mm. Um. We see him as a character. When we see Gandalf, when we see, you know, the other characters in, in The Lord of the Rings or the, you know, Peter and Lucy or uh, Reap a Cheap, you know, we don't think of who are they predicting. We, we see them as characters in a narrative, but they, they fill our minds as characters. As we read them, they fill our minds up and, and the book of Revelation is filled with these characters. You can't look at Revelation, listen to Revelation 12 being read. These were people who didn't sit and read the book. They listened to it. And it starts out, and it sounds like Israel with 12 stars. The 12, you know, for a first century Jew is Israel. I mean, it could be the apostles, but probably Israel. And then all of a sudden, it sounds like Mary. It has to be Mary because this woman gives birth to Jesus. Well, only Protestants don't see that as Mary. In fact, one of my <laughs> one of my friends wrote a commentary on Revelation, and I said, "Did you see Mary in Revelation 12?" He said, "No, I don't think anybody sees that." I said, "Just try reading the Catholics and the Orthodox; they all see Mary here." And then all of a sudden, that woman seems to become the Church. Mm-hmm. So, it takes imagination 
rather than some kind of flat-footed literalism to say, well, which one, which woman is it? It can only be one. Well, why? Can't the image morph the way the lion morphs to a lamb, the way this woman morphs two more times? Uh, you have to have imagination to see that. You have to see um, have imagination to connect the woman of Revelation 12 with the rom- woman of Revelation 17. You have to have imagination uh, to see uh, the vision of God with all these things surrounding them. Those are images that make us think of stuff. And if we let those images take us where they take us, the book will do what it's supposed to do to us. Now, we, as 21st century Westerners, white guys with not much hair, <laughs> you have more than I have, we, we need help because we're not first century Jews. So we have to baptize ourselves into apocalyptic literature to catch some of this stuff or into prophetic literature, which is just as valuable many times in Revelation, if not more. Um, but it will stimulate our imaginations, and that's what it's supposed to do. And I often tell my students, I, I want to read this aloud, and I want you to put your Bibles down, and I don't want you to look at your texts. I just want you to listen to this being read, and what happens to you? What did you see? What did you hear? What did you smell? What did you feel? That's what happened in the first century, and that's what John was trying to evoke when he wrote the letter. It takes imagination to read the book of Revelation, and when you see it as speculation and prediction, you ruin the imagery. Yeah. Well, and you 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 brought up the word prophecy. We've talked about the prophets a little bit, uh, but just there you said prediction. So I, I wonder if you might like. Uh, I we we haven't really talked about this much on the podcast. Um, but like the difference between sort of uh, prophetic as in like the prophetic literature, uh, which tends to often, you know, talk about the unjust um, structures of society versus prophecy as what is the next event uh, that's supposed yeah. to be coming in the future? Because um, that might also trip some people up. You just said prophecy, but this isn't prophecy in in the sense of trying to tell you, you know, foretell uh, what what the next events are. Well, I like to, I've been teaching this for so many years. I don't even know what language I use anymore. I taught it for 17 years, two or three times a year. A prophet is fundamentally a social critic. That's the category. I used to tell my students when I was teaching undergrad students that they were like a New York Times newspaper columnist. Or, you know, if if you read other papers, that's fine too. Um, but they're social critics. They they basically have a passion from God. This is Heschel in his great book on, on the prophets. They have the passion of God to speak to the people of God, a word of God from God about the current situation that if they don't respond to the ways of God, that they're going to experience the judgment of God. And attached to that social critic prophet is prediction of what will happen if they respond well and what will happen if they respond in disobedience. So the prophet was not primarily a predictor, but a revealer of the way of the the message of God, the will of God, the truth of God about their situation in the present with implications for the future. Mm. So, and Revelation partakes in prophecy. John says it's a prophecy, the end of the book. Um, but prophecy is not just prediction. And this is what, this this is constant, Jazz. It's constant that I have to deal with this, this question. I mean, it's not the question so much that you've asked, is that, well, if it's prophecy, it's gotta be about the future. No. <laughs> If it's prophecy, it's it must be about the present first. It's meaningless if it's not about the present. So prophetic, the, the prophet speaks the message of God to the people of God about the present in order to tell them what the future will be in light of their response. That's very, very helpful. Um, so as a kind of like, 
a question that I often ask my guests uh, just to sort of switch gears, do something that's not, it doesn't have to be related to the book, but it can be. Um, I often say, I often ask this question, what is one thing you once thought was true that you now think is false? Uh, or one thing you once thought was false and now think is true. So one one big shift in your own thinking. Sometimes people will talk about uh, the research that they've done for the book. So like research can yeah. lead you to change your mind, um, which I think is some of the fun of research. Uh, also frustration, uh, but also just the in life. You know, sometimes we we you know we we have these big moments that that change our way of thinking, and and those can be uh, interesting to me. Well, um, this is something that's kind of percolating in my mind right now, so I'll put it this way. And that is, um, I think the people today in the church who are on the margins of the church, who are going through what they like to call as deconstruction, mm. which is not technically what uh, the French deconstructionists were talking about, <laughs> but doesn't matter. Um, I think that they have developed a prophetic voice to the church mm. at times when i first heard him talking i thought oh, they're just cynical you know but the more i listen to them the more i realize that they are developing and i don't think that always that they have a clear sight of where they're headed they're developing a very serious critique of the church based upon how the church has systematized and become systemic in its, let's say, lackadaisical, we'll call it Laodicean uh, <laughs> piety. So um, I've changed my mind on that. At first, I thought maybe it was just kitschy and trendy to be a, a deconstructionist. But as I've listened to more and more of them, I think that they have some, they're, they're, they're drilling down on some very important things the church needs to hear. And what I see them saying is, we've got to get back to Jesus. And we gotta, we gotta, in a sense, toss out the rubble connected to all this churchiness. And you know, a lot of my students are just sick and tired of mega churches, performance platforms, celebrities. They want to have someone who follows Jesus and cares about the poor, and uh, they're they're tired of the other stuff. So I, I've learned a lot from them. Oh, that that that's helpful. Um, I yeah, that was not what I expected you to say, but uh... well, I mean, I could talk about the Book of Revelation, but that's what I talk about. No. Yeah, no, no, it's good. I appreciate it. I yeah, it was uh, it, it was not where I thought you'd go with that one. Um, well, I, one thing that just as I was reading, I was a little surprised by. Uh, I didn't put this down. I hope this is okay, but. Uh, you were talking about the dissidents, and you listed a whole bunch of people, some of whom have like closer connections to the Christian story, and some of whom have less of a connection to the Christian story. So how is it that uh, – can you talk a little bit about the category of dissident, and what does it mean uh, – You know, so some of these people wouldn't have read Revelation, uh, but they still might be a helpful um, image of, of being a dissident, or I don't know. Maybe is that uh, – I, I sort of no, wondered, I think, like, well – yeah. Do they fit? Well, no, I, I, I chose people because of their courage to stand up to systemic corruptions and abuse. Yes. Gandhi clearly was not a Christian. You know? Yeah. Uh, I had a public discussion with Tom Wright about this one time. Not that he thought he was a Christian. Um, so I think that those people in their resistance some of whom clearly Mandela, Martin Luther King had connections to the church, were expressing the kind of dissidence that Christians need to take on in our world today. And I don't think we should be embarrassed by connecting ourselves to people who had the courage to do the right thing in a world where it cost them deeply to do the right thing and to speak up and speak out. So I use those as the examples. And um, I don't know the full stories of each of them. You know, I, I'm not a specialist on on Aung San Suu Kyi, who was <laughs> under arrest for her resistance and fight for freedom in Burma. I have read her story, you know, uh, a small story. But, uh, yeah, so and I I've only read a little bit of Vaclav Havel, 
uh, and I'd like to, I should read more, uh, philosopher, social critic. But these people had prophetic powers to speak. And I think that, that God can speak to our world uh, through more than just uh, ordained ministers who wear collars. <laughs> P- point taken, point taken. I'm, I'm reading yeah. a book. Uh, it just the, the um, Vaclav Havel reminded me of this. I'm, I'm going to do an interview with a theologian called uh, Paul Hinlicky. And he just wrote a book about a Slavic uh, resistor to um, sort of a kind of uh, fascism in in um, in Slovenia. Uh, but he's uh, let's see, Samuel Stefan Osuski, um, and just another just another name. But actually, one of the interesting things is I so I've been preparing for the interview with you and the the interview with uh, Paul Hinlicky. And um, in the 1940s, as he was concerned about the rise of Nazism. Um, in in his country, uh, he wrote a commentary on Revelation, um, and it was sort of it was actually Revelation uh, that was giving him the courage to speak up um, against go. what he felt like was the corruption of his age. And he ended up also so they they fell under the Soviet uh, bloc. Um, so he also he was in prison for. 20 years, I think, or, or at least put into mm. exile um, for being uh, a resistor of um, they, uh, the Hinlicky calls it Marxist Lenin, Marxist Leninism, Marxist yeah, Leninism. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he doesn't call it communism all the way through. But anyway, uh, but he faced political uh, um, yeah, yeah. persecution for his theological beliefs, including those of uh, from Revelation. Yeah. Well, Alan Bisak, or I think that's how you pronounce his name, Bosak from South Africa did the same thing. He has a little book on Revelation. And he was fighting apartheid because of the courage. And I think that's what this book should do, give people courage to resist the systems of corruption. Yeah. Well, I guess that's just, you know, one more piece of evidence uh, or goes in your favor of the reading, right? There are lots of people Thank who are you. reading yes. Revelation. Uh, and... Uh, well, um, I don't want to keep you too long, um, but uh, it has been a pleasure uh, to talk with you. Um, and uh, I, I wasn't sure exactly where the conversation was going to go. So we got a little baseball in there. Uh, we got yeah, a little right. bit of uh, history of uh, dispensationalism. Um, yeah, well, anyway, uh, so the book is uh, Revelation for the Rest of Us, A Prophetic Call to Follow Jesus as a Dissident Disciple with Zondervan Press. Um, and so I uh, just want to say thank you to uh, Scott McKnight for being on uh, History of Christian Theology. Well, thank you, Chaz. And uh, you uh, give your father a greeting for me. And tell him I remember all his papers, <laughs> even though I don't. <laughs> he well and, and it's not that big of a deal is my father-in-law actually my wife's father-in-law. dad okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah uh, my, my dad's a banker so he you know he doesn't <laughs>